Welcome to the Alcohol Tipping Point Podcast. I'm your host, Deb Maisner. I'm a registered nurse, health coach, and alcohol-free badass. I have found that there's more than one way to address drinking. If you've ever asked yourself if drinking is taking more than it's giving, or if you've found that you're drinking more than usual, you may have reached your own alcohol tipping point. The Alcohol Tipping Point is a podcast for you to find tips, tools, and thoughts to change your drinking. Whether you're ready to quit forever or a week, this is the place for you. You are not stuck and you can change. Let's get started. Welcome back, everybody. Today on the show, I have Sonia Callen. She is a recovery coach and founder of Everbloom, which is an online community that provides small group recovery meetings with supportive peers and a recovery coach facilitator. Welcome to the show, Sonia. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm I'm looking forward to just hearing your story, how you went from being an orthodontist to now founder of Everbloom and you're a recovery coach and just where you're coming from and how you got here, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been like an interesting career path. I feel like, I don't know how you got into nursing, but I was given like three options as like, and my parents were Indian immigrants and it was like, do you want to be a doctor, a dentist or a pharmacist? And I was like, just pick the one in the middle. Yeah, let's go with that. And so I don't think I ever really had like a burning passion for it. I liked it for sure. And I liked working with like teenage kids, but yeah. So, so I was so lucky that orthodontics is kind of different where you don't actually work on the patient directly, like you have like 10 assistants. And so it's easy to expand an orthodontic practice. So I got to like seven locations and then got to sell business. And that was like the greatest thing that ever happened because at the time for the past decade, I had been just like drinking super heavily and like my mental health was just like spiraling out of control. I think it was a combination of I had a probably a drinking issue before the business started and then like with zero coping mechanisms for stress, just like it, it took off. Can you share about your experience with drinking and how it became a problem and then how you unwound that? Yeah, it's like now because I've had some time like of sobriety to look back, like it, it clearly started when I was very young. And so... I probably started smoking cigarettes when I was like 13 and drinking when I was 15. And I like the first time I drank, I was like, we have arrived. This is it. This is what I've been waiting for. I'm super anxious kid and super insecure. And it just like opened things up for me. And yeah, and then I just kind of binge drank all through college and dental school and my residency because I would have exams. So I would just kind of, it would moderate the frequency of my drinking. So I would like not drink for weeks. And then like after exams would just like, just total disaster, like just oblivion, like getting things pierced, like what, and like, just like falling off curbs and like, yeah, like there were consequences, but they were so like limited in time. And so, yeah, I stuck like, you know, stuck with that until I graduated and started working and then started a business. And then it just kind of turned into something else where it was like, oh, I'm, it wasn't just to go out. It was like, oh, I'm going to come home and have a glass of wine while I make dinner. And 
and it never was a glass of wine. I'm not, it didn't, it didn't progress. Like most people like, oh, first I started with a glass. Then it's like, no, it started at like half a bottle to, and then it went to like a bottle of wine. And so, yeah, that was pretty much it. I knew, I knew for a really long time that there was a problem many years. And then how did you unwind it? How did you quit drinking? I think I had been thinking about it for a few years, not quitting, thinking about like there's a problem. And then when that offer came to sell the business, I was like, there's going to be nothing to moderate my drinking now. So it was like, well, I don't have to get up for work really early the next day. I'm going to be home earlier. I'm still going to stay at the company, but it would be like a normal person schedule, like a nine to five, which I had never done. And so I knew that I didn't have any, like in the last decade, I hadn't developed like any coping skills, any hobbies, any interests and other than drinking. And so I thought this is going to be bad. And so I just tested out like a couple of days. I hadn't taken a day off drinking in a decade, not a day, like not a flu, not a surgery. Like I just kept I was like hardcore. I just kept going. So you were consistent. Yeah, that's one thing. That's one thing that stayed the same. You can really count on me. Like, if you ever get arrested, like, I'm probably the person to call. I'm very reliable. Like, yeah. And so I just was like, let me test out a day here and there. And it was excruciating. But that also was like, okay, there's a big problem here. I can, I can barely get through one day. And so I just had a really vicious hangover one day and I was out with a girlfriend of mine to brunch and she was pregnant and so she couldn't drink. And, you know, the waiter came over and was like, do you want a mimosa? And I was like, no, I don't. And I like never said no to a drink. And I just was like, okay, this is it. This is it. This is the day. And then I remember going back home and being like, oh my God, I'm not going to drink tonight. Like, oh my God. Oh my God. And then just kind of one day at a time, like next day, I was like, oh my God, well, we made it one day. Maybe we can make it two. And so, yeah, I just kept going. And that, so that mimosa lunch that turned into a no-mosa lunch, that was like your last drink and you were done? Yeah, it's it's a bizarre story because it's like, I think then people are like, well, was your drinking not like really that bad? And I'm like, no, it was. Like, yeah, it was bad. I just... I think too, like I had so much information, like I have so many alcoholics in my family. My brother's an alcoholic, like I had, and clearly I had trouble going a day without drinking. And so I knew, I knew there was a problem. So that in a sense made it easier to be like, okay, this, you, you're not, I didn't have to decide to moderate. There was no decision. Mm. Yeah. I've heard this described as spontaneous sobriety. Where you just, and there have been a few, I've, I've had a few other guests that, and I call y'all unicorns, <laughs> but a few people that have decided like I'm done and then you're done. I think what, but like you said, you had been thinking about it for a long time. You knew that you had a problem. So pro- part of it was undercover. And then when you took the action phase consistency again you just kept going yeah it was it's like it happened really slowly and then all at once so it was like I was going 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 and then probably a month or two before the actual day I had gone like one day I had like was like I'm not gonna drink for a Super Bowl and I didn't drink for the Super Bowl 
And uh, yeah, and so yeah, I am. I am really consistent. I agree. <laughs> once, once I make the decision, it's like, but I don't. I don't necessarily think it's like a willpower thing. I do think that that I had made this in my mind. It happened. It was happening for years. That makes sense. And then, did you join any groups? Did you do any support? Like, how did you continue? And how have you continued? How long has it been now? It's been. <laughs> Six years. And awesome. Yeah. And so at the beginning, I was still in the practice, active, like daily. And I remember wanting to go to AA. My brother had been in AA for a really long time. And I, my husband at the time was like, no, no. Like, what if you bump into somebody we know? What if, what if, you know, you bump into a patient? What if you, and I was like, I don't know. I was like, it's anonymous, but I kind of like, went along and I was like, okay. And so I just kind of did my pathway. I just like did everything I had ever wanted to do my whole life. And so, and that really did, I, I just made a full life that I had never had. And so I was writing and I was like making art. I did a photography certificate, took like a class in everything. I took writing classes. Yeah. I started volunteering a lot and really just getting involved like with life, like in a way I hadn't been present before. And so that was like for a few years. And then I started feeling like I really want some sober support. And it, it actually happened. My brother relapsed and I didn't realize how strong a support he had been. And so when that happened, I think within a few days, I was like, I need, I need help. I need to like, so I went to like my first AA meeting and it was fine. I like, you know, I like the people and I, I love AA. It just doesn't the the whole program doesn't like resonate with me, like the totality of it, but like the parts of it, I just love. Like I even, I love talking about the steps. Like I just love it, but it just wasn't for me because probably because I'm so consistent, right? So I was like, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it. And I didn't. So you mentioned your relationship with your brother. My brother also is sober now, two years. You grew up growing up being the child of Indian immigrant parents. And I'm just so curious, like in your culture, and I, I love learning about like different cultures and how they view alcohol, different cultures, different religions. So in your experience, what what is the Indian culture like attitude towards drinking and alcohol? Yeah. So one, which is interesting, I'm really starting to understand like the cultural sort of implications too. Once I started to notice, like, why am I not seeing any like recovering Indian people? Like where? Yeah. Are and so I think one, yeah, women don't drink right in that culture. Like, and so even if they do, they're probably hiding it. I, I mean, just, they just didn't. And men drank really heavily and, you know, just to like, they were very low functioning. They were just like getting arrested, getting in DUIs, getting in like verbal altercations, physical. And so I think that when it comes down to it, like in that in our culture, there's no such thing as an addiction and there's no such thing as mental illness. So mm. you can't, for example, you can't admit to that because everything is predicated on what everyone thinks of you. That is all that matters. And so if you come from a good family and it's like, well, if you come from a family with an addict or with someone with depression, then no one's going to marry you is kind of like where that's sort of like the standard. And so, yeah, it's it's interesting because I remember even telling my parents like, oh, I stopped drinking. And they're like, oh, really? 
And then I remember being like, I, st I started Everbloom, you know, it's for recovery. And they're like, oh, we didn't realize it was that big a deal. Interesting. Well, wait, if you come from like a family of, of really high achievers and, and you said they, your ex, the expectations were you would have to be, a, what, a doctor, a lawyer, or a dentist. Doctor, dentist, or pharmacist. Lawyer came oh. like, I think, oh, it was before my time. I think that probably they were accepting lawyer. Like in like the 2000s, Indian people opened it up to like a lawyer accountant, maybe. But <laughs> not, not the night. Interesting. So interesting. And but but it sounds like appearances and keeping up your family appearance and not showing any mental health concerns or admitting to having problems like that just runs culturally throughout the Indian culture. It is really like deep seated, like very deep seated to the point where there are like so many secrets in Indian families like they're we're sort of like how white people were in like the 1800s. That's sort of where we are, like with like our exploration of things like that's Yeah, we have a ways to go. Well, thank you for sharing that. So <laughs> fascinating. Uh, well, tell me about Everbloom and why you started it. Yeah, so I had sort of finished up at the practice and was just doing stuff, like just keeping busy, like yeah, volunteering, writing about my sobriety. And I was just really happy. And so out of nowhere, and I mean out of nowhere, I know people are like, there had to be signs. My husband woke up one day and left. Oh, and wow. after 18 years, he was like, he would, had been really unhappy with kind of like where he was in his life, but it was more like it, a him thing, not an us thing. It was like, he didn't know what he wanted to do next. I sort of had like some sort of pathway and, you know, I was still doing things. And he just was like, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know if I want to start another business. And so, you know, he had been seeing like a performance coach. And so we were working on it. And then one day, I guess he thought the problem was me. And, you know, on his way sort of out the door was like, you know, you're you're so much more introverted than you were when we met like 20 years ago. And you're so like into your family. And I, am, I have like a girl gang. I have like two sister-in-laws that were both married and divorced from my brother and uh, three nieces. And like we are like really tight. And yeah, when you have five female best friends, you're not really, you know, like I had other friends, but I wasn't really actively trying to expand my social circle. And, uh, and the last thing he said was like, you're happy with too little. Like you're just happy with, like you don't feel the need to start another like big business. Like I kind of been like, you know, wishy-washy. He was like, well, let's start another align, like an aligner business, orthodontic aligners. I was like, do that. Like I was really I was, I didn't articulate it properly, but I was very committed that if I was going to do something, it had to have a social impact, like in a mm. big way. And otherwise there was no point. Like, I'm not, I'm not just going to do something again just for the sake of it. And so, so he left and I remember like for the, and the first time in five years, I was like, how am I going to stay sober? What's the point? And I was in New York at the time and I remember I was walking my little dogs on the Hudson and like, just like staring at Jersey being like, oh my God, like my whole life is over. And I'm in like 
this excruciating pain. And I know for sure drinking would take it away temporarily. And I, I thought I had been working on this toolkit and like my sobriety toolkit. And I was like, none of those things are going to work here. Like there is no journaling. There is no Pilates or any, like there's no eating healthy that is going to get me out of it. And quick enough, I think is actually probably the operative thing. Those things are not going to get me out of it quick enough. But, you know, drinking a bottle of wine is going to get me out of it in like 10 minutes. And so I thought, okay, let me just like, I went back to my apartment and I was like, let me try a meeting. One of my friends in New York who was sober had been trying these online meetings, like non-12 step. And so I logged in and it was like 8 a.m. And I went to that 8 a.m. meeting for like a couple of months. And so, and it just, it kept me, it really just kept me like connected. And what was really amazing was like, I would say to myself, like these people, like especially people in the first like 30 days were struggling so much. And I'm sitting here like whining about my husband, who's clearly a jerk, right? Like clearly the guy is not like, and I thought, what would they do to have five years of sobriety? What would they, they would do anything? Like I owe it, I owe it to them to like, just keep going. Like, let's do another day. Let's do another day. And uh, the group was like around 220, 230, 230 people. And so I enjoyed listening, but there was no way I was going to share. There just was no way, like one, I'm introverted. And two, like, I really wanted feedback. I wanted a conversation. I didn't want, I didn't want to vent at like a Zoom screen. I didn't want to just be like, my husband's so terrible. I can't believe this happened to me. I don't know how I'm going to stay sober. And then like mute and go on to the next person, right? Oh, I, yeah. I am curious how how that worked with 200 people on a call. Because I run yeah. group coaching and calls and we have like less than 20. So I can't even imagine yeah. 200 people. Yes. So yeah, that's what the interesting thing was. I was like, yeah, I... It's so basically they do like a reading or and then they say congratulations at the beginning and then people put their hands up for shares and then they go in the orders the hands went up and the sheriff have nothing to do with each other. They okay. just it's like boom, boom, boom. And you set a timer for two minutes and you keep going. And so as time went on, I really was ready to start talking about it. And um, and I was talking about it with my friends and my family and my neighbors, but I really needed like a sober support. and. I thought, like, does this exist? Like, there's, there's like small support groups for divorced women. There's small support groups for different, you know, things, but not for kind of like both. So I thought, it, what I really need is I need like a sober support group of like people, a small group of people going through some sort of like life transition where they have to rebuild their lives. And we can talk about the ups and the downs of this and, on days I'm feeling really bad, they can make me feel better. And days, you know, I'm feeling okay, I can, you know, make them feel better. And so, yeah, I looked for it, didn't find it. And then I thought, okay, if this is going to be a business, like, let's map this out. Like, what does this actually look like? And so I just sort of like took a piece of paper and I wrote like sober in the center. And I just like made these spokes coming out of it. And I thought like, what are all the, you know, horrible things that have happened in your life? And I was like, yeah, I had imposter syndrome and I was like, oh, so that could be a group. People suffering with imposter syndrome and trying to stay sober. People are suffering from job burnout. I had job burnout, trying to stay sober, life transition. And then, you know, multiple, multiple groups of people in the first 
like in early sobriety, the first 90 days, the first 120 days. And so that I just kept going. And so I started interviewing people that I thought like would be potential customers. And I was like, is this missing? Is this something you would go to? And it seemed to be, yeah. And what was interesting is like, I was sort of off base with like the, the group thing. I met like multiple witches who were like, we would love a witches sobriety group. And I was like, yes, this is what I'm talking about. That's kind of crazy, but yeah. Well, I mean, finding people, finding people who get it is so key. I, if you have friends and fa- that because you end up feeling so alone when you are the, like, it seems like you're the only person in your small world, in your town, in your family that is struggling with this drinking thing. And so when you can find other people that get it, it it's so comforting. It's so helpful. It's, it's really amazing, these kind of connections and support. Is, and it's like, if you think too, like there's no one closer to me or understands me better than my sister-in-laws, but honestly, was I really going to say to them, I'm thinking about drinking and lay that on them after like the trauma they have around drinking. And I, yeah, it wasn't, it was like, I to tell my neighbors I'm thinking about drinking. No, like for some reason you want to tell somebody who, you know, understand like what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the whole getting it thing. I just, I share this a lot because it always cracks me up, but like Bell Robert, Bell Robertson, who wrote Tired of Thinking About Drinking, she equates it to, you know, some people don't get it. It'd be like if we were talking about corn on the cob. And if it would be, you know, like I, I was I was eating six corn on the cobs every night. Am I going to have corn on the cob again? I, I just got divorced. I think I'm going to have corn on the cob, you guys. So, so for someone that doesn't get it, to them, that's what they're hearing. They're like, I don't, I just, no, of course you're not. What's your obsession with corn on the cob? I love that. I love that. kind of funny, but so true. Well, where did you come up with the name Everbloom? I was just like, okay, we need a name. And I just like kind of wrote two columns of words that I thought were sort of like fitting and then put them together. And then when this, these two came like ever and bloom, I was like, oh, I love that. Like it really kind of described like the idea that your sobriety is sort of like evergreen, but also still changing. And like mine has changed so much. And so that there's still like a lot of growth, I think. So, yeah. I've, I've, I've talked to a few people that have gotten sober, given up drinking or whatever, and years down the line, like you, you were five years out, then they decided, oh, I, I really should do something with this, or I should get support, or I do, I do want to talk to people about this. I, I think that's a more common story than we even know about. I, it just seems to be repeated again and again. Because I think a lot of people who don't identify as like alcoholic, who don't go to AA, and they get sober, they give up drinking, they still keep that part of themselves hidden. And maybe they're not sharing at their new workplace. They get a new job or with their new set of friends. And and so again, you're still kind of, I mean, it really is a part of you. It's part of your journey. It's part of your story. And it is important to share. I can understand wanting to not 
talk about drinking again and being tired of drinking and wanting to just be like, well, that's old. I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that I think maybe what that comes from, like, so I was always really comfortable with like the term alcoholic as it referred to me. But what I've noticed with Everbloom is like most of the people don't identify with that label yet or ever. Right. And so I think that I think a lot of people who aren't in any sort of group approach it like just as physical abstinence. And it's not until a few years later, you're like, what what was I trying to numb? Like, what was I pushing down? Like, is it time to like look at those things now that like the physical and like the I'm used to going out and not drinking part is kind of like I have that under my belt. Yeah, I totally I get what you're saying. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I don't use the term alcoholic. I'm trying to get rid of it because medically it's alcohol use disorder and it's on a spectrum. And so you don't have to use that term. And I think it keeps a lot of people stuck. It's so stigmatized. And I also see as you get further along and you're owning your alcohol-free badassery. Those kinds of words aren't quite as loaded for me anymore as they were at the beginning. Yeah, I like, yeah, I feel that way. I'm like, you can call me anything like, you know, but I understand the reluctance for people, especially at the beginning. And I think I think that's also what I've realized. There's so, so many people in Everbloom that are gray area drinkers and the goal is not necessarily sobriety. And so like where they can't go to AA, that's not even an option and so I think there have to be sort of like other options like AA is probably not going to change its language anytime soon no no there needs to be a safe space to explore your relationship with drinking yeah and that's why I run monthly breaks I call them alcoholidays because it's taking a break from drinking and evaluating your relationship without having to decide that you're done forever. It's just giving you the time and space to evaluate your drinking and and have some people around that are going through the same thing that you are. Yeah, I mean, do you feel this way? Like if I had thought that was an option, like to take an alcohol holiday and not have to make like a full like black and white decision, like I'm never going to drink again, like I probably would have tried that earlier. Totally, yes. Well, I always did dry months. And I just gritted my way through them, like dry January, or I would have a race I was training for and I'd I'd be like, okay, 30 days before I'm not going to drink. And to me, that was just more and more evidence that I didn't have a problem. Wow. But I never really, uh, I wasn't ready to give it up. I really wasn't ready to give it up until I started learning more about it, until I did, I did Annie Grace's alcohol experiment. And that was really eye-opening and really paradigm-shifting because before it was always, you have a problem, it's your fault, like the AA model. And this was another approach that was, hey, listen, alcohol is shit for your health and it's addictive. And, you know, marketing is behind all the scenes. (laughs) So it gave me just another approach to changing my drinking. And then I started to slowly change my thinking about drinking until I could get to the point where I was like, I'm going to 
divorce drinking before it was taking breaks. And then it was like, I'm done with this relationship. It's toxic. Bye. And I think that's why, though, it's a part of our identity. Like it is a part of my identity. Yeah. But not everyone wants that to be like so when people when we talk a lot in the group about like what do you say when you go out and I'm like I have like a sign being like I have alcohol use disorder like I'm really you know but people don't want to advertise it and and that makes sense that they need other skills like other coping mechanisms other way to explain what you know is going on and so yeah yeah but yeah I think when you're in recovery all day every day it's like big part of who I am Totally. And and being proud of it, too. I'm proud of it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm proud that I don't drink. And that's why I call myself an alcohol-free badass. (laughs) You are going against the grain of society and all the drinkers out there. But it's something to be proud of. To be proud of. Like, I'm a non-drinker and I'm pretty fucking proud of that. Yeah. I mean, what, so what percentage of your clients are alcohol-free and with what percent are like want to moderate? Well, it's a good question. I had sent out just kind of a general survey to my email list and it was honestly divided in thirds. A third were divorced. They were done with drinking. A third were struggling and wanting to be done with drinking. And then the other third were okay with their relationship with drinking. So maybe they were moderating or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And as I found that as I was doing more and more of these groups there, and I can see how your Everbloom works because you're like, they're not, there's not just one support group for one type of person evaluating their drinking There can be sober, curious people. There can be people that are done and they're struggling and they have decided I'm done with drinking, but they're still struggling. And then you have the people that are still, you know, they haven't decided yet and they're taking a break. Yeah, I'm surprised and like pleasantly surprised that how many people sort of are like, I think I have a problem. I want to cut back and seeking a group. Like, yes. you sort of struggle with that on your own, like I did for a couple of years. Like, it's it's really amazing. I think it helps so much to see. It does. It, it, yeah, that whole term sober curious is is a really useful, helpful term for sure. Yeah, I love I think that it's I think that is what's letting that sort of like paradigm shift of like alcohol free beverages and like. Because they're not stigmatized as like, hey, this is like an O'Doul's or I don't know. Is that what that's called? Those beers? Yeah. 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 Awful. I was a stigma to be drinking that. But I feel like now it's like turning into something that if you drink it, you can either be sober, curious, sober, like nobody's asking. Definitely. Definitely. Well, with all your years of being alcohol free, do you have some top tips or top advice you would share for people who are giving up drinking? Yeah, I think most of my advice probably comes from the time from around the divorce when I was really struggling with, you know, thinking about drinking again. And I think the something that really helped and it's cheesy, but like the never question of the the decision was Mm. huge for me. It was like, 
we're not going to go back and like relitigate this issue from five years ago. Like there was a reason. Maybe right now I don't feel like, you know, admitting what the reasons were, but there were reasons and they were solid. And that and that I know all my stuff is really cheesy. The play the tape forward works so well. Like, yeah, I mean, they're just kind of like catchy ways to say like, you know, other like pretty serious principles, but play the tape forward. It's like, how, how many times should we do that in our life in general? And we don't. Like, I should do that more, not just about alcohol. I should play the tape for me. Like, if I make this decision, what's the likely outcome? And so that helps a lot. And I, I use it. All. I still use those a lot. And, and then one now that, have you read James Clear, Atomic Habit? Yes, love it. Yeah. And so that, to me, the whole, that, that I like twin it with like this, the act as if sort of thing. It's like, start seeing yourself as someone who doesn't drink or someone who doesn't drink more than two drinks at dinner. Like that's who you are. It's not like what you're trying to do, if that makes sense. And so I, that really, I feel like I wish I had been more like that at the beginning. It would have made it easier. Well, I liked what you shared about at the beginning, you were doing replacement activities and you were getting curious and you were filling your time with other things besides drinking. Yeah, kind of like create a life. You, again, so cheesy. Create a life you don't want to escape from. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could I could only speak in motivational <laughs> quotes and be fine. It could be a whole podcast. It was like a world surprised how easily they're flowing out. It's like I want to use like an actual, like a unique sentence, but yeah. Well, there's a reason why they're so popular and they they connect. I did used to think they were so cheesy and I did not like them, but I I'm always posting some motivational quote or something. I I I think they're just they hit more honestly now. And, and I wasn't like very honest or authentic, I felt like when I was drinking. Yeah. And I think also, I, I don't, a lot of us, if, depending on when you start drinking, like from sort of the when you start drinking heavily to when you quit, you don't really evolve that much. So you have like a lot of years of stuff to catch up on. And so I had like, decades worth of relationships with my nieces to catch up on and it was like yeah it's just so so interesting that it's not it shouldn't be that hard to fill your life with things that you had wanted to do because you know probably you weren't doing them for a while mm -hmm. it, it's such I see so much growth and transformation in people when they give up drinking it is amazing it's so like beautiful to watch yeah. And I don't see it as much in people that will still give themselves, I'm going to say this, not people who are moderating, but people who still give themselves permission to drink in a stressful situation. Mm -hmm. Like if things hit like a 10 out of 10 emotionally, then it's okay if I have a drink. I feel like that's where I'm trying to like work with people a lot to be like, that's when we're not going to drink. Mm -hmm. You are going to drink when you go to a dinner or a cocktail party. You can have a drink, but you are not going to drink when you have had a bad day at work. Well, when you can master the skill of being un or being 
comfortable with uncomfortable emotions, that is going to serve you in all areas of your life. Yes, like everything. It really does sort of, yeah, it works with everything. And my toolkit eventually also worked. Like it did come back. It like slowly I did start journaling and it really helped. And I did start eating properly again and it really helped and sleeping. And so I think you don't develop that toolkit if when you're at a 10, you're still going to alcohol. Mm -hmm. And it could be something else, too. We just kind of buffer our negative emotions because we don't want to feel negative emotions, even though they don't last, even though, you know, no feeling is final. it's, It's so easy to not feel things in modern day society, you can get pleasure from so many different areas, not just drinking. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah, there are. There's so many. I mean, even the phone thing now, like sometimes when I, do you notice this too, when you'll be talking to people like, so like, what do you think you could do to improve like X, Y, Z? And they're like, probably use my phone less. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't necessarily have a phone addiction. So it's kind of like, yeah, that's a thing. That's a thing too. A way to like kind of numb out and like check out of what, you know, of your life. Yep. So easy. So easy. Well, what else do you want to share that we haven't got to talk about today? What's interesting, like what's been on my mind lately was the cultural thing, which is really interesting. And like sort of like the mental health stigma has been on my mind too. I, someone asked me to, to talk on a mental health podcast and I've only ever talked about sobriety and I'm like well what do you mean and they're like we'll talk about like your depression I'm like but it's obvious isn't it like why else would I have been drinking and it's not I think obvious to people that most I don't know what would you say most people or you know definitely a percentage of people that struggle with addiction there is some there are some mental health issues that are underlying that have to be fixed for that sobriety to last and i yeah well i was just gonna say it's 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 this vicious circle of is it the depression or the alcohol is it the anxiety or the alcohol because you create this this vicious circle where it's the snake eating its tail and yeah yeah that's exactly it i don't know if i consciously thought i was Mm self-medicating i don't and i'm yeah, that's really interesting. I yeah, that that it's only kind of when you stop can you really tell if there's an underlying issue with anxiety and depression. And I what I have noticed is for the most part people's depression and anxiety alleviate. They just feel better. There there's so much of the alcohol that is contributing to it. So so much. And sometimes when you're drinking and you are being medicated for those things, that's a vicious cycle too, right? Because why aren't these medications working? And it's like, because you're throwing alcohol on top of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm guilty of that. I had been on antidepressants and drank the whole time on them. It, It has only been very recently that I weaned myself off of antidepressants. How was that? I at first, and this is the first time I've talked about it because I know that antidepressants are so helpful for people. So I don't want to be 
encouraging people to go off any medication, yeah. especially as a nurse. <laughs> yeah. And antidepressants are ones you don't want to abruptly stop. So you do, if you do decide like you've given up drinking and you are feeling better, do talk to your doctor about tapering off safely from antidepressants. I have felt great. I I started my antidepressants after I had my first daughter. It was it was more postpartum. I had anxiety and that was very helpful for me then. I went off of them after she was like a year, got pregnant again, had my second daughter and started the antidepressants again. It, a lot, lot, well, maybe five months later and had been on them ever since. Also, I my drinking really, really amped up when my kids were little, especially once my daughter turned one and stopped breastfeeding. After that, when they were really little, two and a half years apart, that's when I drank the most. So I still kept taking my antidepressants. I felt like, oh, I still need them. Also, it was still drinking heavily. Now, I haven't drank for over three years, so it di I did stay on my antidepressant for quite a while. I reduced the dose. I was just kind of a little hesitant to go off of it, and so I, I just decided I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it. I do feel better overall. I'm on a low dose, and it, it's been great. I feel good. I do notice I am more teary, teary-eyed. I'm more emotional. I'm kind of more all ranges of emotions, but it's going great. That's amazing. How do you feel about medical management of alcohol use disorder? Oh, I think it's great. I think yeah. there's naltrexone out there. I mean, old school was Anabuse. I don't know who's doing that anymore. People are doing it. Are they? Yes. I can't believe it either. That I feel like it's sort of, that it's so old school. Like torture vibes like yeah oh yeah that that's the one if you're listening that's the one that you can't have anything with alcohol in it or you will vomit and and then there's another one camperol that helps reduce cravings naltrexone i think has been a real big game changer for a lot of people i know somebody who has a like a naltrexone telehealth company and people, like the majority of people he's getting are people who don't want to tell their primary care doctor. Mm -hmm. Is that uh, ORS? Is yeah. that O-A-R-S? Yeah. Yes, oh. I had I had one of their representatives on the show. Oh, then, right. Yeah, we were in, we're in the same business accelerator. Oh, so crazy. Yeah. Well, it is definitely a need. That's for sure. I don't think they would have taken a chance on me if they hadn't done another kind of industry, alcohol abuse industry specific business. But once like when I pitched them, they were like, yeah, we just did or like it's going to be good. Oh, that see, I love that there are so many different options out there. I That's my whole goal of this show is just to show you there is not one way to change your drinking. There's not one right way to change your drinking. There's so many different groups and medicine and modalities and <clears throat> so many different ways you can get support. I feel like that too. Like I, I like, you know, you don't want to say like, don't join my group, but it's like, I know it's not for everyone. Like I feel that like yeah. creating is different and it's not for everyone. Not everyone wants to 
participate in that way. Not everyone wants to interact with the other members and like support and encourage them. They're kind of wanting to like figure out their own thing. And that makes sense. And it's just, yeah, I think there need to be different options. I think I would have joined a group sooner if there had been, if I thought there were different options of how to yeah. people. I've heard the analogy. It's like finding the combination to your lock, like your old school lock that was on your your gym on your gym locker at school so finding the right combination that works for you and and that's going to be different for everybody because we're so unique but it's just wonderful to know like there's everbloom out there there's or health if you want to do naltrexone there's reframe you can come do an alcohol a day with me like there's just so many ways you can of course still do aa you could do smart recovery. There's so many. I know. I always encourage people who are in AA. It's like, well, you're not cross-talking. So go to AA, do your steps, and then come to Everbloom and, you know, chat with people. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a different, it's not, they're, yeah, they're not mutually exclusive either that you could do more than one type of like program or like, yeah, meetings. It's interesting. Well, Sonia, I've loved our conversation today. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. How can someone find you? So we are either Join Everbloom or Everbloom on all social media. And then if you want to check out a free meeting before committing, you can come to joineverbloom.com and click sign up for a free meeting and then check it out and see if it's for you. Perfect. I'll I'll put the links in the show notes. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point podcast. Please share and review the show so you can help other people too. I want you to know I'm always here for you. So please reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com for free resources and help. No matter where you are on your drinking journey, I want to encourage you to just keep practicing, keep going. I promise you are not alone and you are worth it. Every day you practice not drinking is a day you can learn from. I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, talk to you next time.